0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 11. And when you find that, please stand with me, if you are able and willing to read God's Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you. That we could be here today, together today to sing praises to your name and to pray and to read your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me just say right from the beginning, I know that it is weird, it seems odd, to speak of judgment at christmas time to speak of jesus as the coming judge at christmas but it shouldn't it shouldn't sound weird see we prefer to see jesus as a gentle baby lying in a manger a cute cuddly baby we can handle not a judge whose judgment will be executed on those who do not believe but like it or not, judgment fits biblically in the context of the Christmas story. It goes with the darker sides of Christmas, like Herod's arrogant dishonesty, his slaughter of the innocents, Simeon's saying that the child born in Bethlehem was appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. God's judgments are reserved for those who refuse to believe those who reject righteousness even when it stares them in the faith, face whose unbelief puts them in line for God's just wrath against their sin this is what Matthew 11 20-24 is all about instead of repenting and believing they rejected the righteous one Jesus and condemned themselves in the process you don't have to go any further than John chapter 3 To see this john chapter 3 and verse 16 most of us know that verse it goes like this for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life some of us know verse 17 it says for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world should be saved through him but many do not know verse 18 whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Many people don't know verse nineteen, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We're focusing on a two-part question: Who is Jesus, and what, do you, what does he want for Christmas? A multifaceted. Question with multifaceted answers, and we're based in Matthew chapter eleven. Matthew chapters eleven and twelve show who Jesus is, set in motion by John the Baptist. Question in Matthew eleven three: Who are you, Jesus? Basically, and they not only, not only review reveal who Jesus is, but what he wants. They contain both comfort for those who believe, yet sometimes doubt, and challenge for those who refuse to repent and believe. Last week we saw Jesus the coming Messiah, that He is the one who would save his people from their sins. Jesus wants people to listen to Him so they will understand who He is and become His true disciples. But we know that it's hard to be a Christian at Christmas, and focusing on Jesus is a countercultural act, and so Christ's disciples must cling to Him. Today, the answer of the question, "Who is Jesus is? Jesus is the coming judge. And again, it's going it's to sound weird to, 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 to think about that at Christmas time, but it fits with the Christmas story. The answer to the question, what does he want for Christmas, is this. Jesus wants people to turn to him so they would survive the day of judgment. Because there is a day of judgment coming. The scriptures tell us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He wants us to take Him seriously. He wants us to love Him more than life itself. Jesus wants us to love Him more than life itself. To believe the truth and be saved. and So as we process through these verses, these, these five short verses, there is a logical sequence of events that, that get set in motion depending upon a person's response to Jesus. Now, The first thing we're going to see Is a tragedy. It's the tragedy of unbelief. There is a seriousness in Jesus' rebuke that we cannot miss. We see it in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says that Jesus began to scold or denounce, rebuke, reproach the cities where most of his miracles had been done because they hadn't repented. No one likes to see someone get scolded. Jesus is scolding the cities where his mighty works had been done. They had not turned from their sins, and so in verse 21, he says, "Woe to you, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. And if the mighty works that were done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented." Tyre and Sidon were large Phoenician cities. On the Mediterranean Sea, they were not far away. They were often denounced by Old Testament prophets for their Baal worship. Now, there were small numbers of people in those locations that did repent and believe in Christ. But for the most part, the people there were known for their idolatry sackcloth and ashes is what they would have worn if they heard and saw the things that those two cities had seen they were a familiar way of signifying mourning sackcloth was a rough fabric made of camel's hair it was worn close to the skin and it was to express sorrow and grief ashes were added as well to express deep emotion people would put ashes on their head they would they would uh, sit in them. They would even lie down in them. Some would roll in the ashes to show their their grief over their sin. But Jesus uses a familiar Old Testament practice of pronouncing woes. Yeah, now, it this wasn't the Fonz's kind of woe. If, if you know, remember the Fawns wasn't like whoa. It wasn't like that. Okay, this was an exclamation, basically meaning. Your pain is going to be very great. Your your suffering is going to be huge. I know some of you don't even know who the Fawns is. You'll need to ask someone later. Okay? Warnings had been given, but the time for warnings had passed. Woes were now pronounced. So we have to ask the question What miracles were done in Chorazin and Bethsaida That they had seen Well Jesus did most of the miracles Recorded in Matthew In Capernaum And in nearby Corazon, Which is literally two miles away You could walk there quickly And Bethsaida What did he do there? He healed the centurion's servant He healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever He cast out demons and healed more sick people He raised a dead girl to life He gave sight to two blind men He cast out a demon Of a person who couldn't talk And by the way All those were found in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 But the people of Chorazin And Bethsaida and Capernaum Refused to turn from their sin And believe in Jesus Even when they saw these things Now it's interesting to note That Jesus didn't denounce these cities Because of their strong opposition to him He denounced them for their lack of repentance that revealed their unbelief. Basically, while some people had had accused Jesus of things, people in these cities had been indifferent to him. One writer says that indifference is the most heinous kind of unbelief. They were indifferent to Jesus. They, They basically ignored Jesus. They disregarded God as an issue not worthy of talking about or thinking about. They didn't take him seriously. Now, there are several ways to recognize unbelief. We get asked the question a lot. If you're a believer, you get asked the question, hey, is so-and-so a believer? So-and-so a Christian? And often we don't know how to respond, but there are several ways to recognize unbelief if someone is not a believer. Those who will not believe in Jesus are, they're characterized by refusal. Refusal. What do they refuse? First and foremost, they refuse to believe God's word. Second Peter chapter three, verses one through seven, speaking in the context of the day of the Lord and when He will come back. Peter says this. He says, "Now, this is the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. He is writing to Christians." And in both of them, he says, "I am stirring you up by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. It makes sense that scoffers would scoff. Yeah. <laughs> Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, they're ignoring the word of God that has come to them through the Prophets. is someone who refuses to believe God's word. There's something else they refuse. They refuse to acknowledge Jesus. Go with me to Jude. The last book before Revelation. And in Jude verses 3 and 4 it says this, Beloved, again written to believers, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why do they have to contend? Because verse 4 says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny Jesus. They refuse to acknowledge him. They refuse to follow. The other thing that that an unbeliever refuses to do is to turn from sin. In Jude, verse 10, it says this. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. They walked in the way of Cain, Abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and punished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. They're amongst the believers. Looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We find it difficult to understand as believers how anyone would say no to Jesus. But all you have to do is remember how it was in your life before you believed. And you can understand. Well, what we see, and we see it in this passage, is that all who refuse to believe will face the reality of judgment the reality of judgment we see it in verses 22 through 24 in verse 22 jesus says it will be more tolerable for tyre and sidon in the day of judgment than for you got to ask what is the day of judgment the word judgment comes from a greek word uh, crisis crisis from we got our word crisis it means a separation it means a sentence it's not surprising it comes from the word that means to judge. <laughs> judgment. There was a Jewish court of justice in those days that went by this name, consisting of 23 men. They had the power over life and death, over criminals, in the time before the Roman government took over Judea. But here the word refers to the final judgment. Just go back with me to uh, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 15. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It was a town that didn't listen to the word of God. Fast forward a bit to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they will speak. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Verses 41 and 42 of chapter 12. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Who's the something greater than Jonah? Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a day of judgment, a final judgment. Acts 17 and verse 31 says that He, God, has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've we got to distinguish between two judgments there will be a judgment of believers there will be a judgment of unbelievers here it is speaking of the judgment of unbelievers believers will be judged at the judgment seat of christ we see it in romans 14 where we will give an account of our actions unbelievers will be judged at the great white throne of judgment you see it in revelation 20 now neither judgment determines salvation that's determined before the judgment Believers are already saved by grace through faith, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. Unbelievers are already rejected due to unbelief. But The day of judgment here refers to the day of Jesus. When Jesus, who has the power over life and death, will judge. There will be a final separation between those who believe and those who do not. Verse 23, Jesus then refers to Sodom sodom was proverbial for wickedness the sin city of their day and he says in verse 23 you capernaum he's pointing out capernaum this was the place that he had kind of his home base during his ministry he says you capernaum will you be exalted to heaven so they're thinking they're going to heaven and he says you're going to take a trip as far away from heaven as you can get you're going to be put down to hades he says Capernaum had almost made the phrase lifted up to heaven, their town motto. I could just see the sign as you're coming into Capernaum. Capernaum, home of Jesus. And they're thinking, Jesus lives here. We're in. Those in the favored city of Capernaum who did not believe like self-exalting Babylon will be brought down to Hades. There is a clear connection here to Isaiah 14 and verse 15. that speaks of Babylon. It says, you will be brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. That's where they're going. Now, Frederick Dale Bruner said this. He said, Jesus is not interested in the sponsoring of his presence. He is interested in response to his presence. He is interested in repentance. He is interested in changed life. So Capernaum, though they thought they were privileged, and they were, they weren't in because many of them didn't believe by the way the the new international version has the words the skies you don't think you're going up to the skies you'll go down to the depths the new american standard version says you think you're going to heaven but you're going to hell the esv says you think you're going to heaven but you're going to hades synonymous there with hell Gehenna and Hades, basically uh, many times in the Bible the same thing. There's a clear connection there to Isaiah. But those who do not believe will be brought down to Hades to spend eternity in the torments of hell. Jesus goes on to say in verse 24 that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for them. I mentioned earlier, it's no fun talking about judgment at christmas time the next two weeks we're going to see uh, next week we're going to see jesus speak of the grace of god and then the week after the day after christmas we're going to see jesus give a gospel invitation but here jesus speaks of judgment and so we're focused by the way this is one of the most helpful passages in the new testament to understand the nature of judgment i just want to point out several things that it reveals The first thing is is that it will happen. Some people will say, well, it's not going to happen. And because I don't think it's going to happen, then, hey, I'm just going to go along my merry way. And the idea is it will happen. It is certain. Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, to some. He will separate the sheep from the goats. It's going to happen. There will be unmerciful judgment for those who did not turn from their sin and believe. The other thing this shows us is that there are levels or degrees of judgment in hell. Just as there are degrees of blessing in heaven, as 1 Corinthians 3 even points to the idea of reward. But here it seems that Jesus is saying that punishment on the day of judgment will take into account opportunity. Take into account the amount of light that was revealed and what was done with it. The idea here is that the the guilt of those who who have the greatest opportunity of hearing the gospel is intensified. It is magnified over those who have not had such opportunity. The idea is that it is better to have heard nothing of Christ than to hear the truth and yet reject Christ. That's why people who live in America, who, who basically say, hey, I don't believe will be, we'll be held to a, a, a stricter judgment because they had opportunity to believe. Hebrews 10 and verse 26 and 27 says that if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. See, if there is a person that hears the gospel over and over and over and is not a believer, when they put their head on their pillow or when they think of life and death, they have a terrifying expectation of judgment from God. It says here that there is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's the fires of hell. And by the way, the worst sin is unbelief. So if you're a believer, you can be assured you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. If you're an unbeliever right now, you're in process of committing the unpardonable sin, but if you are alive, there is still hope. You can still turn from your sins even today and believe. Once you die, no more chances to point it under man once to die and then the judgment. And what we know is that God will be fair. In his judgment His judgment is just He doesn't owe anyone anything The fact that he was in Capernaum And that was his home base Didn't give anybody who wouldn't repent A leg up on that one No privileges there Reminds me of a story of That I I heard of Babe Ruth The the famous baseball player There was this umpire named Babe Pinelli, And he called him out on strikes And uh The crowd was booing their disapproval And so Babe Ruth Turns to the umpire and says There are 40,000 people Here Who know that that last pitch was a ball You tomato head You called him a tomato head I think those were fighting words back then So the umpire says to Babe Ruth Well maybe so Babe Called him Babe That was his name He said, maybe so, babe, but mine is the only opinion that matters here. (laughs) Now, I know that you get tired of hearing of me coaching youth sports. But here's the reason why it's so on the forefront in my mind. It is, besides interacting with my neighbors, it is the most significant community interaction I have, and it is significant. (laughs) I was doing some of it yesterday. But I'll say this, whether I'm coaching soccer or baseball or basketball, um, I've never had a ref or an umpire, and I do talk with them, have a little discussion during the game, and uh, basketball's the best, they're running by, the, running by the, the, the bench, you say, hey, give me a foul, come on, that was a foul. And I've never had an umpire or a ref stop and say, hold on everybody, this coach here is right. <laughs> I'm gonna change it. Absolutely not. They're like, get used to it. I just made a call. And a lot of times they're my friends, you know, and I, we still, you know, you still gotta talk to them. Let them know you're there But here's the deal Believers need to uh, be reminded That God's opinion is the only one that matters here in the, ter- in the realm of judgment Doesn't matter what we say about it Now I want to say something about preaching judgment I am not one of those that, that, that is in favor of people Standing on street corners with big signs That says you're going to hell All right? I'm not really wired that way But I will say something about Jesus' message of judgment who it's for and who it's not for. Jesus' message of judgment is not for the contrite. It's not for the brokenhearted. It's, it's not for the repentant, those who are mourning over their sins. It is for the proud. It is for the arrogant. It is for the unrepentant, those who refuse to turn to Christ and be saved. That's who his message of judgment is for. What the repentant need and what they get from Jesus is grace. Grace. The last thing the broken-hearted need is to be scolded by Jesus or any of his representatives, be that a preacher or a neighbor. Scolding just depresses those who are tender-hearted and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. It's the hard-hearted that need the message of judgment. It, it's, it's like the old saying. With regard to preaching, that says we're to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That we need to be wise and discerning as we dis- distinguish between who is who, because we don't know. So we must preach the whole counsel of God and allow the Holy Spirit to make the distinctions and the applications according to who needs it. See, the idea of correcting the repentant and comforting the unrepentant is a tragedy but it happens often. Christians will be scolded and then we'll say, but we don't want to cause anyone to, you know, uh, be, to stumble so we won't tell them the truth about the fact that well, unbelievers are going to hell. We don't want to you know, make anybody upset. From what I read in my Bible, the fires of hell are really hot. And it's torment and weeping and gnashing of teeth that lasts forever. So I'm thinking, I want to tell somebody if they were in that predicament, if they were going there. We are called to preach the word of God, law and gospel, grace and truth. So the unrepentant will be convicted, and the repentant will be comforted. And we might see some of the distinguishing characteristics of unbelief, but only God knows who is who in in the mix. Take our group right here. Only God knows who is saved in this group. So it's not our job to go, well, I don't think they are. I don't think they are. We need both law and gospel. We need both judgment and grace. Jesus the judge and Jesus the Savior. And God knows how to apply those in perfect dosages at all times in our lives. The reality of judgment Highlights the necessity of repentance. Repentance is a key word in this passage. You start, Jesus starts off in verse 20 and says, it, it is saying, it's, it's saying that he is speaking about those who did not repent. And he says in verse 21 and, and 22, you, you would have, they would have repented if, you, if they would have seen what you saw. They would have heard what you heard. Repentance is one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. Again, verse 20, Jesus is speaking of those who did not repent. Verse 21, he says, uh, Two cities that are known for their pagan worship would have repented if they heard what you heard. Interesting, you don't see the word repent in chapters 8 and 9. You see the goodness and grace of God in doing all these miracles. But if the miracles of grace and the faith that it produces do not lead to repentance, there is going to be judgment in a person's life. The purpose of Jesus' works is change lives. In other words, discipleship. Lives left unchanged after coming in contact with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will have to face Jesus Christ, the judge. They will be called to account in the court of Jesus Christ, the judge. So it's essential that we understand what repentance is, and I think it's a largely misunderstood thing in the Christian community. Some think it's just feeling so bad about your sin that you go to great lengths to pay for and make up for what you did wrong some think it's a oops I got caught thing kids you know how it is you, your mom and dad catch you and you're like oops I got caught it's off to take the consequence right? repentance uh, comes from a Greek word metanoio, metanoio, or metanoia it's often explained as a change of mind but that's not all it is it's often explained as to be sorry for something, but it's not all it is. The New Testament usage of the word for repent is influenced by two Hebrew verbs. One meaning to be sorry for one's actions, but the other meaning to turn around to new actions. There's plenty of people that are sorry for their actions and turn around to more sinful actions. This is to be sorry for your actions and then turn around to non-sinful actions. Do an, as we say, to do an about-faith. One writer said that man is born with his back toward God in need of repentance. The Old Testament prophets called people to turn back to God. And it was not just an intellectual change of mind, it was not just a mere grief, it had nothing to do with penance. It is a radical transformation of life of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving the mind and the will and the emotions. And what this assumes is that man's heart and mind and will and emotions are essentially off course and in need of radical change. Repentance is recognizing our sin and turning away from our sin to God. That's what repentance is. A a complete change of life, a, a transformation. And it is not something only the super spiritually sensitive do. It's something all Christians are supposed to do on an ongoing basis it's kind of interesting uh, it seems that we reserve repentance and confession for bigger times like you walk in this morning and you're like "Ooh, it's bread and cups Sunday we're at the Lord's table I better confess my sins or oh I'm going to teach a Bible study better confess my sins or oh I've got a big talk I gotta uh, talk to someone about something really important better make sure I'm all right with God now that's not wrong but you shouldn't reserve repentance just for that The Christian life starts and continues with repentance. We won't be repenting in heaven. Repentance should be as natural a part of our lives as crying is to a baby, as breathing is to those who are alive. Repentance has two sides, two main aspects. One side is from God, the other is to God. Repentance from God is the fact that it's produced by God. Matthew 3.8 says, uh, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And God pro- uh, produces the fruit through us. He produces a longing for repentance. It is given by God. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.25 says that he may grant the gift of repentance. Repentance is a gift from God. It is enabled by God. Romans 2.4 says that his kindness leads us to repentance. It it leads us along. It enables us along to be able to repent. He prepares your heart to receive it, and then he gives you repentance. And then there's the other side of the coin. uh, Repentance to God. The idea is that we're to seek it. We're to seek repentance. I've been reading through Ezekiel and... So I'm reading through the Bible, and in Ezekiel 18 is all full of repentance. Ezekiel 18, 4 says, Behold, God says, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins shall die. You go on to verse 21, and it says this, If a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right He shall surely live He shall not die None of the transgressions That he has committed Shall be remembered against him For the righteousness That he has done He shall live Have I any pleasure In the death of the wicked Declares the Lord God And not rather That he should turn away From his sin and live And then in verse 30 Therefore I will judge you O house of Israel one according to his ways Declares the Lord Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. He says, turn to me and live. We're to seek it, we're also to show it. It takes us back to Matthew 3, 8, where it says to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, God enables it and we cooperate with that. So there's a part we play as well, choices we make. But what's connected to repentance? It's the idea of confession. Confession of sin Confession and repentance are inseparable Like a a Siamese twins that are are sharing one heart They go together They're not to be separated And we do seem to reserve it for special occasions But God wants us to live a life of repentance Confessing our sins Receiving assurance of forgiveness In his book I Surrender Patrick Morley wrote of an integrity problem in the church today And he said this He says It comes from a faulty idea that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. It is revival without reformation. Revival without repentance. It fits perfectly with what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about grace. He said cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. I don't want cheap grace. He calls it costly grace. It's the grace that sent Jesus to the cross. See, true repentance is when a person, by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, has a sense of revulsion and godly sorrow for the condition of their heart due to their sin. And they come to God empty-handed and totally undefensive. And in the most personal and submissive posture they've ever taken before God, from a sincere heart, says to God, I am sorry for my sin." And they come to the only one who has the power to offer forgiveness. This has personal application. This has community implication as well. We're coming to the Lord's table today and I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 11 with me a little more closely than we usually do. I'll usually refer to 1 Corinthians 11 when we're introducing the Lord's table, but I want us to look a bit further in today. Paul is correcting abuses in the Lord's Supper. Verse 17 gives the context. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. He says in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. In verse 20, we see that their conduct was selfish. They were not taking the body of Christ among them into account. He says when you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's what they were supposed to be doing. Verses 27, 28, and 29. Verse 27 says that whoever eats the bread of the Lord or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Unworthy means not in accordance with its worth. Eating of the bread and drinking of the cup while they had sinful attitudes and actions towards each other was essentially sin against God. And so the examination that was to take place, verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The examination was to whether they were harboring sin in their hearts and lives in the form of an attitude or lack of compassion towards someone in the body. It discredits Christ's sacrifice for us and others when we bring sin into the gathering and celebration of the very thing meant to kill sin and eliminate man-made distinctions between people we think well I'm just going to hide it and bring it on in and you can't because it hurts the whole body it doesn't just hurt you we know the ground is level at the foot of the cross many of us say well the ground is level at the foot of the cross unless I'm teed off at someone verse 29 says it says if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body they eat and drink judgment on themselves and it says if we judge the body rightly we wouldn't be judged god disciplines us so that we won't be condemned along with the world but failure to recognize the body of the lord and what it meant to their salvation what it meant to their community life they were to judge themselves and come back in line with God and what he wants to do in them and through them and with his family. That is what is supposed to happen. If not, we make it a travesty. We make it a joke. We make it of no account. We, we take it in an unworthy manner. We are called to do this. It it's, it's first must be applied in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our household and, and in the larger body. But I want to tell you something, and I I want to say it in the most loving way I can. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, clearly leans away from being individualistic. It is not just you and Jesus in a vacuum. Please don't fool yourself into thinking that it is okay to go along and harbor sin and, and anger and resentment towards people and then think that all will be all right. It won't in that church, their attitudes and actions were were sinking the ship. They were causing a break in fellowship and worship. And Paul was writing to a group of people, not individuals. See, the same applies to us. Scripture, by the way, never instructs us to celebrate the Lord's table alone, always in community. We're called to celebrate together because we are interconnected by faith. So here's what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to examine ourselves individually, not be fixed on real or imagined sins or slights of others. We are to correct any sinful attitudes and actions that are present on our part so fellowship can be restored and the family of God can operate as it's intended to operate. That is what we're called to do. We are called to look within so that we will realize we are part of a body. A group where order and unity are to be restored, not broken. They're to be preserved, not shattered. And if we are guilty of breaking fellowship with any in the body, we need to repent. To repent. And we have to take it very, very seriously. Our souls get messed up by their interaction with the world, and our souls get mixed up by their interaction sometimes with ourselves. I kind of see confession of sin and repentance as, like changing the oil on your car as if it needed to be done every day, not every 7,000 miles or 10,000 miles or however long you wait. By the way, I have burned up one engine and came close with another about 20 years ago in my younger days uh, because I didn't change the oil. You don't, it, the best insurance policy on your car is to change the oil, right? The best insurance policy on your soul it is to confess your sins. See, what happens is it gets all gunked up, the viscosity starts to break down, that's a good word for the oil, and the engine burns up, right? I don't even know what viscosity is. <laughs> but lack of attention brings judgment. So pay attention to the condition of your soul, pay attention. Harboring bitterness and anger and resentment Ruins your heart and breaks down fellowship So here's the deal You have to get close with your brothers and sisters in Christ We're family There's no way around it If you don't, you're a Lone Ranger And you really gotta ask Where do I stand with the Lord If you think you can go all alone You gotta read the Bible And see what it says about fellowship But the idea is You have gotta get close to your brothers and sisters And there will be friction That's why we need the oil of the Holy Spirit that preserves the unity of the spirit of the body and the bond of peace. And I'm telling you, we, we are supposed to handle accurately the word of truth and preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we ought to be praying that for this assembly every single day. We should be praying every single day for the health of this body. And lastly, I'll just say this before we partake of the table. For those who repent and believe untold blessing the beauty of life in Christ life with Jesus and where do I see that in this in this passage you go hey this is all about judgment how how do you find that just in one word in verse 23 by inference one word in verse 23 Jesus said that they would have Sodom would have remained to that day would have remained it's The same word as abide they would have repented they would have come into relationship with god there are untold blessings for those who will repent and believe you you become the recipient of salvation singled out by jesus for a relationship with him you 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 follow you want to follow You're the recipient of of sanctification where God is at work in in the life of a believer to to, uh, conform them to the image of Christ. You have security now and forever. Security here in someday heaven because the bottom line is Jesus is the coming judge and he wants you to turn from sin to him so that you might escape the day of judgment. That you might experience the day of blessing Receive the joy of life in Christ That Christmas truly is about But the harsh reality is that some simply won't believe And we see this in the sequence of events This flow of consequences stemming from the, the tragedy of unbelief And it triggers the reality of judgment It shows the necessity of repentance which sets in motion the beauty of life in Christ, a life redeemed by the king, there ought to be great comfort for all who are in Christ. We ought to never take joy in the fact that someone else is getting judgment. But we should always take joy in the fact that we aren't getting the judgment anymore. Because God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Let him be judged so that we would receive the adoption as sons. And that is why we actually come to the table now. That's why we come to the table. To, To remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead according to the gospel.